0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, he, him, pronouns, and on this week's episode, we're speaking with the brilliant Rentaro Nishimura, one of the co-managing editors at NUPR, about some of his recent work on the rivalry between China and Japan in the East China Sea over the Senkaku Islands. It's a fascinating conversation about the rivalry between these two superpower nations in the Pacific, as well as the implications that this little island chain could have for those two countries and the rest of the world. I highly recommend going to NUPoliticalReview.com and checking out the global section where you can read some of Rintaro's work covering East Asian politics. And without further ado, let's get right into the show. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber. And this week, I'm joined by Rentaro Nishimura from Japan to discuss one of his recent articles about the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. Rintaro, if you could introduce yourself.
1: Hi, Max. Thanks for letting me join tonight. Um, my name is Rintaro Nishimura, he, him, his. Um, I'm an f- incoming fourth-year poli-sci major. And at NUPRA, I am a co-managing editor.
0: All right. I've read your piece about the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. And it's a fascinating topic of two countries who are, in a way, rivals with each other competing over this territory of land near the Pacific along the southern islands. Could you tell, give us a little bit of context for those who are less familiar?
1: So basically, the, these islands are... It's a set of eight islands, actually, and they're about uh, 400 kilometers southwest of Okinawa, which is the, the southernmost tip of Japan. And they're also around 300 or so kilometers away from China. And the historical dispute has been about who owns or who has sovereignty over these islands. Japan's official position has been that the Senkakus were lawfully incorporated in 1895. At that point, the islands were still uninhabited. So the the whole thing was that as long as Japan was able to show that it was going to inhabit the islands and control have control over them, that would be that would be a way to officially claim sovereignty over the islands.
0: Uh, Mm -hmm. according to international law, that's kind of the the base standard for what it means to Mm -hmm. for a country to claim sovereignty is to have that long term goal of inhabiting and exercising sovereignty. Over the islands,
1: yeah, that's true. And the the thing about China is that they've been disputing those claims by Japan that it was lawfully incorporated into their into the into the country. And sort of where they argue is that, well, first of all, the Senkakus were part of China even before eighteen ninety five. Which I'm not sure how they were supposed to prove that. I think there were a bunch of maps that came out from China that sort of were there to prove that that the Senkakus were part of China and also the 1951 San Francisco Treaty which was right after World War II a two sorry and it sort of gave back China all the the territory that Japan took during the war and sort of they argued that the Senkakus were part of that treaty and Japan has disputed that claim saying that it was only Taiwan and the, the pescadores which are not Senkaku's. The Senkaku's were never mentioned in this treaty, which sort of goes to say that China never included the Senkaku's in the islands that they ceded to Japan in the during the war in the first place. An interesting point I found was that in 1953, which is after that treaty, there is a Chinese official newspaper run by the Communist Party that talked about um, the Ryukyu Islands, which is Okinawa, and they said and they had a map with of the Ryukyu Islands that had the Senkaku's as part of the Ryukyu islands which is a territory of japan so they sort of unofficially proved that japan had a claim over the islands
0: this Mm -hmm. was from a chinese state-run news outlet that kind of gave this indication that japan was in Mm -hmm. fact sovereign
1: and so the the interesting thing is that china hasn't hadn't at least until that point formally claimed sovereignty over the islands that was only what they started to argue after 1969, when a UN report stated that there were um, a rich oil and gas res- natural gas reserves in or, and around the waters of Senkaku Islands. And that sort of was when China started to claim sovereignty over these islands. And you know, this is what I think one of the chief reasons that China continues to lay claim over these islands. Going into a little more recent, Times in two thousand ten, Japan nationalized three of the islands, and it was it was a move made by the the then Prime Minister um, Noda. It was sort of supposed to diffuse tensions, sort of to because the confusion over who had the control over the islands was supposed to be one of the reasons why there was a dispute in the first place. So the Prime Minister thought if they nationalized the islands, it would sort of clearly define who had the islands, and that really angered China, and it led to. Um, increased intrusions into the waters around the Senkakus. And so basically territorial waters are 12 nautical miles, which is around 22 kilometers from the baseline of the 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 territory out to, yeah, so 22 kilometers from there. And that's the territorial waters. And that is under the countries who the coastal states control. And vessels are allowed to pass as long as they... They don't try to control the islands or sort of do any military exercise or anything like that. So it's called innocent passage. So as long as there's no intention of doing anything illegal, it's fine, you can pass through. And Chinese boats haven't really come that far, that close to the islands. I think in May, there was a, a period of time, three consecutive days that the Chinese entered those waters. Which are actually more provocative than entering the contiguous zone, which is twenty-two kilometers or twelve nautical miles, and an extension from the territorial sea. So that area, it's based on declaration, so it isn't like officially defined, unless the country declares a zone. And so that's sort of like the outer ring of water around the territorial sea that that boats can still go through, but it's sort of under the jurisdiction of Japanese law.
0: I see. And let's let's get into China a little bit in some more detail. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you mentioned just a, a few minutes ago that China really, they didn't make a lot of strong moves for sovereignty over the Senkaku Islands until that, uh, the late 60s when it was discovered that there's a lot of oil and natural gas in reserves near those islands.
1: I guess we're trying to get into why China continues to do that and sort of the silence that China had had before that point in 1969. That's sort of just, it's its an interesting point because China has sort of legitimized their claim to the islands based on a lot of facts that came before that point. Japan's whole argument is that that, that UN report was the sole reason that China began to lay claim to the islands. And I think it's just interesting how there's two perspectives and there isn't really an international authority that can sort of prove either is right.
0: I see. And I know that we mentioned this, Rintaro, when we spoke earlier about this topic, and you mentioned it in your article as well, that the the energy reserves in these islands are enough to to meet the energy needs of either China or Japan for, I think it was, Correct me if I'm wrong, but between 50 and 80 years, which is very substantial.
1: Yeah, it's, I think I, I found that it was around 50 years. And it's, it's an important point for both countries, I think, because Japan is an island nation. And I think Japan relies a lot on um, imported oil from the Middle East. And for China, their domestic demand is outpacing their supply. And that sort of gives a reason for both sides to want control over the islands. And there have been joint um, extraction projects that have happened. In 2008, there was a project with, between the two countries to extract oil and natural gas from the regions around the Senkakus, but it's it always goes back to claiming sovereignty. And the problem with that project was that the, there was a problem with the line that was drawn it was a very arbitrary line. And so the problem was that one side had a little bit more oil or natural gas that they could extract. And you know, that, that caused a lot of problems.
0: Yeah. So just to make sure I'm, I'm getting this correctly in the territory, there was an art arbitrary line drawn. One side is Japan's side where they can extract energy. And the other side is the Chinese side where they can extract the, the oil and natural gas
1: they drew, drew a line in the, in the water, literally. And they said that on this side, Japan can extract, on this side, Chinese can. And there was a problem because it, everyone realized that I think the Japanese side a little bit more. And that, so the Chinese would cross that line and start drilling in the Japanese side. And that caused a lot of problems.
0: I know, as we spoke earlier about this, this isn't just a, a squabble over resources. There's also a lot of strategic and political aims that these countries have to claim these islands what are what are some of china's other goals with claiming sovereignty over these islands
1: and one of them is to secure sea lines of communication and and these sea lines are sort of primary routes between ports which are used for trade and logistics and for the military and this is sort of an interesting point because The waters around the Senkakus obviously run from the eastern side of China, and it also passes through Japan, and I believe Taiwan as well. And those two countries are obviously not on good terms with China. So controlling that area of water allows China to smoothly go through with their trade and also with their military. And that's strategically relevant, considering the the rivalry between the US and China. And in a potential conflict, having those sea lines of communication will be critical to success in the long term. And a second point that's sort of related to that sea lines of communication re- reason is breaking through the first island chain. And the first island chain is sort of a, a, a Chinese doctrine, a, a word that comes out a lot in their doctrine. And it sort of talks about, um, it, so the, the the island chain runs through Japan, Taiwan, and the Philippines. And it's it, visually it's China and then on the eastern side of China of the east east of the eastern coastline is Japan Taiwan and the Philippines and sort of those countries are sort of not Philippines maybe but Japan and Taiwan at least are pro are most likely U.S. allies compared in relation to China and sort of breaking through that wall the invisible wall that exists in that area is strategically important for the same reasons that the sea lines are. And sort of making sure that that encirclement is broken is important for Chinese ambitions in the Western Pacific and also just in general in, in Asia. And, and another point I find interesting is is that taking the Senkakus might not be for any of those reasons above, but actually sort of showing off their military might. because especially since the early 2000s, I would say that China's military is becoming larger and more diverse. And a lot of experts have, have discussed the notion that China has overtaken Japan and its military capabilities. And I think it's a good way to prove that if they're able to take the Senkakus. And it would also be a, a way of showing, the, showing Taiwan and the United States that Taiwan is also a capable project for the chinese if they would want to take taiwan
0: so jumping back for a second that first island chain so if you're if you're listening to this imagine kind of the east coast of china how it kind of bows out into into the sea and then around that up at the north there's japan running down through japan there's then this island chain including the senkakus and then as you keep going down there's Taiwan and the Philippines. And so what I'm getting is it's very important to China that this island chain that kind of surrounds their entire coastline, in a sense, isn't entirely in the hands of countries that are, I don't want to say hostile, but not necessarily friendly to Chinese interests.
1: Yeah, so this is what the Chinese are saying in their literature is that as long as the hostile nations have control over the first island chain, in, in an event of war or a conflict of any sort, if the, the allies on the other side are able to sort of box the Chinese in in that area, that would really be bad in the long term because that would stop trade and also stop the Chinese Navy and potentially even the the Air Force from getting through that, that island chain. And that would severely impact how the Chinese would have to fight.
0: And as you mentioned, it's also for the Chinese government, it it doesn't look good internally to to their citizens and to their institutions if their competitors are able to encircle them. And so what I'm getting from you is that if China can take these islands, it's not only strategic, but it shows the Chinese public that China is is not gonna take this lying down. And it shows Japan, US, Taiwan, that China is also, they can't just be bullied into accepting anything, that they're going to push back on some of these things.
1: Yeah, I think the the important point here is that the Chinese are at least building confidence that they're able to really sort of bend other countries to their will. And I think the, the whole thing is obviously in relation to the United States, because the United States has been, you know, working with allies like Japan And they've been asserting control over the the, Asia, East Asia, and sort of this military imbalance that's starting to show up between Japan and China is an indication that China is now able to assert its own will onto other countries. And this would be a way of doing that. And it's and it's also a way to show the Chinese citizens that that China is strong. And I think it's very important now, especially because of all the the heat they got from the Hong Kong stuff that was happening. That and the coronavirus and sort of the the heat that the government was getting from that, even from their citizens. This would be a way to sort of shut that down and show that the government is very strong and shouldn't be messed around with.
0: Yeah, it's definitely, it's a good opportunity if, if they achieve this to really just build so much confidence with the Chinese government within China which which makes a lot of sense given a lot of what's happening in general mm-hmm. shifting gears a little bit let's let's turn our attention to to Japan and kind of let's go into what some of the Japanese interests are in the Senkaku mm-hmm. Islands obviously mm-hmm. there's the oil reserves and if if they're rivals with China then Japan doesn't necessarily want China to succeed in this region either. But what are some of the other reasons Japan has for maintaining sovereignty over these islands?
1: I, I think, as you said, it's, it's a lot to do with the resources and also not letting China have their, their way. A point that, that the Japanese politicians, especially in the, in the ruling coalition, the Liberal Democratic Party, which is Abe's party, the prime minister's party, Mm -hmm. they sort of really talk about how Japan should not relinquish any of its territory, even if it's disputed, because it sort of shows a weakness on the Japanese side and they don't want to get trampled on by other countries. And I think the, the notion here is that, is that ever since world war II, Japan has obviously in article nine of their constitution have relinquished their ability to go to war and, to hold forces that are able, a military that is able to do that. And it sort of shows that their commitment to peace, but also that it could be a sign for other countries that Japan isn't willing to fight for what's theirs. And I think this is one of the disputes that Japan needs to show that they are willing to put up a fight and that they are able to put up a fight. And I think it's really political in that sense. It's not really about how valuable the, the specific islands are, but it's also national pride and also in terms of security. And sort of going off of that security point is that Okinawa is only 400 kilometers away from the Sukaku Islands. And Chinese scholars always point to the importance of these islands. And especially because there are U.S. bases now, the, the importance of Okinawa to Japanese national security is, is more than probably people expect. And so sort of letting China take the Senkakus would be tantamount to a next move towards Okinawa. And though I doubt that there's, there would be a conflict, I'm not saying there's going to be a conflict over Okinawa, but the, the importance to both countries of holding Okinawa is, is massive. And so I still think that that's partially why Japan will continue to lay claim to Senkakus.
0: So, yeah, jumping back for a second into the Japanese constitution and their their war-making capabilities. So, Japan, they can defend themselves, but they can't be aggressive in the region. And China is definitely aware of this. And something you bring up in your piece is that China isn't attacking this region but they're 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 bumping elbows in a way. They're kind of going into the region intrusions is the word you used and they're kind of playing with that unique restriction Japan has on their ability to to make offensive strikes by testing the line between what is what is acceptable versus what is an act of aggression that would constitutionally allow Japan to engage in self-defense. Is that, am, uh, I, am I getting yeah. a good read on
1: that? It's, it's called, it has a term, it's called gray zone tactics. It's it's what China has recently started to use, especially since 2010. It's, it's a way of circumventing Japan's, uh, sort of using Japan's weakness in that sense. And also sort of making sure that the conflict doesn't get out of hand. And I think that's very important right now because I don't think China is, ready, or I'm not going to say ready in terms of capability, but I don't think China really wants to go to war. It's it's going to be costly for them as well. And I don't think that's the whole point of doing this. They've actually found a way to not go to war and try and take the islands. And so these gray zone tactics are sort of sub-threshold coercion. It's sort of a way to, I call them jabs instead of real punches. They're sort of ways to provoke the Japanese into reacting. So if theoretically, if the Chinese did want to go to to war, it's a way of justifying going to war. It's sort of making sure that the Japanese are the first ones to strike towards the Chinese, the first ones to fire a shot, literally. And so that would give an excuse internationally as well for the Chinese to to start a war. And even if it wasn't to start to go to war, it's a way of sort of So the whole thing about the Chinese in this region is that they don't use their people's liberation army, which is the military. Instead, they use fishing boats, which are sort of like paramilitary, it's a paramilitary organization under the Chinese army. It's because obviously that they need permission from the the government to sort of fish in certain areas. Yeah, and And, just if I can jump in for everyone listening, when Rintaro says fishing boat, this
0: isn't you know you and your grandpa going out on a, a little speedboat to do fishing. This is from my understanding, like an industrial fishing boat and is in some cases armed with weapons of their own.
1: you know a fishing boat really sounds like it's it's innocent and you know it's just a uh, it has nothing to do with the government, but they obviously need permission from the government. and they're sort of officially they're not sanctioned by the government, but it's clear that they're part of the government's strategy to intrude into Japan's waters. And as Max said, there have been cases where uh, artillery of some sort of guns, and even sometimes they're accompanied by government ships. So they're clearly not just there to fish. And the, the number of ships that are coming into Japanese waters is also increasing by by the years. And at one point, I think in 2014, and I'm not sure if that's the exact year, but there are 200 to 300 fishing boats that came into Japanese the contiguous zone, which is 44 kilometers outside of the Senkaku Islands. And it was designed to sort of show the Japanese Coast Guard, which is the first initial responders to any kind of intrusion into into Japanese waters, that they can overwhelm them in any sort of way Eventually, they were told to leave and they left. But I think it comes to show that the Chinese can always overwhelm the Japanese forces by sort of numbers. And also the Chinese send Coast Guard ships, which are very large. I think they're the largest in the world. And in terms of size as well, like of the actual organization, it's also the largest maritime authority in the world compared to the Japanese Coast Guard, which, is, which are the first responders, as I said, they're allowed to arrest Chinese fishing boats, but they can't touch government vessels, which I think is an important point that China always tries to use to their advantage.
0: And why, why is that, that the Japanese Coast Guard can't, can't arrest the Chinese government ships?
1: Yeah, so under international law, there's, there's a stipulation that even in the contiguous zone, which is technically Japanese water, you can't touch Navy vessels that are under the government. The response by Japan's authorities, whether it be the Coast Guard or the, the Self Defense Force, which is sort of Japan's version of the army or the military, is that they request these ships to leave the island or the, the territorial waters. And in most cases, the Chinese do leave because their whole point isn't to start a war, but it's to sort of lay stake to the islands without firing a single shot. And one of the experts I read about talked about how the Chinese would try to put in ships, fishing boats into the region and then send their own Coast Guard to sort of police those fishing boats. And in that way, they sort of say that, yes, those islands are ours, and the waters around the islands are the Coast Guard's jurisdiction, the Chinese Coast Guard's jurisdiction. And that's a way of not going to war and still laying claim to the islands that the Japanese currently administer.
0: There's a lot of, like you mentioned, sub-threshold activity going on from China in this region that It's so clearly done in a deliberate way to make it a gray area for Japan's response. China is making sure that Japan doesn't have a good excuse to start firing shots in self-defense, which is, it's the interesting position that Japan is in when it comes to their constitution. And I know when we were preparing for this episode, you mentioned that there have been some Discussions within Japan, within the Japanese political institutions, about tweaking that constitution to to change what it means for Japan to have self-defense capabilities.
1: This debate about re- rewriting the constitution, the Article Nine, which I talked about earlier, which rescinds Japan's ability to go to war and that and any military that Japan may hold in the future. And in 2014, there is a cabinet decision which is made by the government to reinterpret, not rewrite, but just reinterpret the constitution and allow this thing called collective self defense, which sort of gives Japan the right to help any ally or any country that is in a relationship, a strong relationship with Japan, and fight with them in a, in a case of a conflict. And that sort of is already against sort of Japan's self-defense forces jurisdiction because in in the article in the constitution the self-defense force or I'm just gonna call it the SDF. The SDF's jurisdiction is within Japan's territory and its territorial waters. So technically collective self-defense outside of the the territory would be a, a big change from what the Self Defense Force has been doing for the last since post war, World War Two. And so that's a big departure from the previous interpretation of the constitution. And the prime minister's goal has always been to rewrite the constitution, which is different from reinterpreting. Rewriting would need to be passed by both houses with a two-thirds supermajority. And this this is Prime Minister Abe? Yeah, it's Prime Minister Abe's goal since coming back to power in 2012. And so the the whole difficulty of rewriting opposed to reinterpreting is that it has to go through both houses with a super majority, a two-thirds majority. And so far, that's, that's not happened. Abe's term is running out next year, so I'm not sure if that's actually feasible at this point. So the discussion has sort of shifted towards first strike capabilities, at least in Japan's political institutions. And that's sort of like this discussion that, Striking at an enemy's base or military facilities first before any missiles are launched at Japan is a form of deterrence. And that that holding those capabilities would stop or prevent the adversary from shooting missiles in the first place. I think that makes sense in this context, in this national security environment with North Korea's ability to shoot missiles at Japan. And also China's increasing aggression in in the East China Sea, especially because these a conflict over the islands is definitely going to spill over to a larger conflict. And China's missile capabilities are obviously very high, because um, a a general or an sorry, an admiral of the U.S. command in the Pacific Indo Pacific talked about how the intermediate Range nuclear first treaty, which is the INF treaty, is sort of a treaty between the U.S. and Russia over ground-based missiles and how those are prohibited. At least if they're between a range of five hundred to five thousand kilometers, China is not party to that, so they have enough cruise and ballistic missiles which are capable of hitting Japan. And so the the concern is that China will use these missiles to hit Japan before they start a ground invasion, and so the whole discussion about first strike capabilities is to augment that and sort of fight that Chinese missile capability threat.
0: So by by changing the constitution, I guess an example of what would now be possible for this kind of deterrence strategy is if China or North Korea is preparing or looks to be preparing a missile strike at Japan, that the idea with rewriting the constitution is that Japan should be allowed to stop that threat before the missiles are fired, before severe damage is done to Japan in order to to make sure that, I guess, the way I'm thinking of it is Japan doesn't want to let China or North Korea get one free shot before Japan starts protecting itself.
1: I think we need to separate first strike from rewriting the article nine because rewriting article nine is sort of, it's been going on way before this talk about first strike capability started. And it's sort of the main point of doing this isn't really to allow Japan to be able to fight back because that's already under allowed under the constitution. It's more of legitimizing the SDF as a, a, legitimate, a legitimate part of Japan's defense structure, because currently. The, the SDF is seen by some constitutional scholars as an illegal force because they're not mentioned strictly in the, in the Constitution. And so Abe's whole goal was to mention them by name in the Constitution by rewriting Article 9 and making sure that the SDF can operate outside of Japanese waters for their self-defense. And so the first strike capability is sort of a discussion about striking first, which in conventional terms is a preemptive strike and could escalate tensions. But the whole argument here is that Japan needs to have this capability to ensure that other countries know that Japan will fight back and to ensure that the number of missiles that are shot towards Japan are at a minimum. Because by showing, by actually hitting some facilities in the other country's territory, It shows that Japan can hit these facilities, and that sort of confuses and delays any opportunities for the other side to shoot more missiles. And I think the important point here is that defense takes more money than offense. Like one calculation said that it costs about five times more for defensive capabilities, especially in terms of missile defense. And so there's a a physical budget constraint on Japan, and so. Actually, being able to defend with missile capabilities is far more difficult than having offensive capabilities to defend the homeland. And I think that's part of the calculus here. It's about making
0: sure that Japan is able to defend itself and that the world, that Japan's rivals know that Japan is able to defend
1: itself. But I just want to stress that this doesn't mean Japan wants to go to war or is getting more aggressive. I think it's still within the parameters of self-defense. And I'm, I am I think the whole debate right now is to make sure that there's a clear distinction between a preemptive aggressive strike and a counter which is sort of based on the notion that the adversary is going to attack. And that's the reason why we're going to strike at them. And so I think that's an important point to stress, because I think a lot of people in other countries and even in Japan think that. For Japan to hold a 1st strike capability is tantamount to going back to World War II and sort of aggressive expansionist Japan.
0: I see it. Yeah, it's definitely important to make that distinction. Pivoting a little bit, I want to bring up for just a few minutes here that Japan and China aren't the only countries with interests in the region. There's also the the United States has interests in the Senkaku Islands, not obviously The U.S. is not claiming sovereignty over this region, but the U.S. does have a significant military presence on Okinawa and a strong alliance with Japan. So going into that topic, what are some of the United States goals regarding the Senkaku Islands?
1: So I think it's really the the larger scale discussion here is that the United States obviously wants to stop China from asserting aggression, aggressively expanding in Asia. And that's sort of the whole doctrine of stop fighting communism. I think it's been going on for a long time. And this is an extension of that. And sort of even in this administration, the Trump administration, this very anti-China rhetoric is sort of helping the United States assert more control in, in Asia. And it's sort of under the whole idea that we need to stop China before they start to expand further. And that's probably the the biggest point here. But I think it's also to show that the United States is still committed to its allies. I think that's an important point to stress now, especially because in, in a year, Japan and the United States will be negotiating the special measures agreement, which I wrote about in a separate article. And this is sort of like talking about how much of the cost Japan would be sharing for US presence in, in Japan. And Trump really demanded uh, an extraordinary amount of money for this new agreement. He said that Japan and South Korea for that matter should be spending like five times as much as they are now. And that's sort of a slap in the face for both allies. And I think sort of having the presence in the South and East China seas not only helps US strategically against China, but it also shows their commitment to Asia. And sort of, I think the the problem with this Trump administration is the mixed messages they're sending.
0: Oh, yeah. Explain that a little bit more.
1: Yeah. So as I said before, Trump the Trump administration is expecting South Korea and Japan to pay five times more than they're paying now for US presence in the region. And as you saw with NATO and Germany. Trump is capable of pulling troops out of the region if he if he deems that it's not fair for the United States. And I think that's the case here. He's threatening to leave Asia and that sort of goes against the message of helping allies in Asia when it comes to preventing Chinese aggression. And I think that's an important point to stress in the in the relationship between the US and their allies and the overall strategic importance of the US being in Asia. I think it sort of needs a strong presence from its allies, but the allies also need a strong presence from the United States.
0: What you're saying is that the Trump administration is on one hand saying that they support the alliance in in Asia. And on the other hand, they're asking for South Korea for Japan to contribute more money, with this this silent implication that if they don't, then the U.S. could pull back from from Asia.
1: Yeah, so I, I'm not really sure what the strategic meaning of all this is. I think Trump is more of a, a he still thinks he's a businessman compared to politician. I think he can still get what he wants, which is fair. I, I mean, he's been talking about this since the 2016 campaign that the US is getting is used by other countries and isn't getting reciprocal treatment from from them and so i think he's keeping true to that promise of making sure every deal is fair but at the same time in terms of for both US interests and the allies interests it's it's important that the US continues to maintain their presence in asia and also doesn't treat allies like subordinates and treats them as equals
0: yeah, I definitely agree with you there. The last thing I was hoping to hear from you, Rentaro, is what you see as a a path to a peaceful resolution for the Senkaku Islands and the tension between China and Japan.
1: So in my article, I talk about more of the diplomatic ways in which this could be solved. And I think it's necessary because of the, the rising, the heightening tensions between the two countries and also from the the military standpoint china has a a budget that is 3.8 times larger than japan's and their ground forces are probably like eight times larger than japan's self defense forces and overall just in general the chinese military capabilities are are overwhelming japan's capabilities and so it's important for japan to make sure that this conflict doesn't explode into an actual war because i think at this point japan As much as the self-defense force and the Coast Guard are doing very well within their constraints, it's going to be pretty one-sided in my mind, unless the United States enter the war. And, you know, I don't want to get into all of that. But in general, I think it's, it's going to be a very devastating and damaging war to be part of. And so diplomatic solutions are obviously the best things to go for. And I mentioned, talk. I talk about the 1978 Peace and Friendship Treaty, which was signed between Japan and China. And it sort of states that the both countries would not seek a hegemony in Asia and would also stop disputing over these islands. And I think it's important to go back to that notion of friendship and peace in the region, because right now, I think both articles in that peace agreement have not been met. So I think going back to that, Mind mindset of being peaceful and making sure both countries don't try to assert control over each other is very important, considering how large these two countries are in Asia. And generally speaking, we've got a the Japan and China have a great economic partnership and a relationship. We're top trading partners to each other, so I think it's it's not very healthy or intelligent to be fighting over a set of islands that really have not much of a, a value in terms of resources. I mean, they, they do, but I mean, it's, it's not very relevant compared to the larger conflict it could spiral into. And so I think as a, as a more of a dove than a hawk in terms of foreign policy, I think diplomatic solutions are always what should be prioritized. But at the same time, I understand why China would not want to sit at the negotiating table right now because they have this overwhelming military capability that can overwhelm the Japanese as long as they're able to keep the United States out. And I think Mm -hmm. it's important for Japan to at least think about, as the defense minister said last month, that all cards are on the table. I think at this point, it's important for Japan to sort of balance out the military gap that's beginning to unfold, at least not to the point that it becomes aggressive, but at least to the point that the Chinese feel that it's more costly to go to war than to sit down and negotiate a deal. Because right now I think the Chinese feel that it would be more of more costly internally and also just to show the world its powers. It's it's not smart to go sit down at the negotiating table right now. So what you're
0: saying is that I I think you make a really good point that a diplomatic solution is Is ideal and it's what both countries would benefit the most from, especially with the possibility of a costly war as the alternative. And what I'm getting from you is that in order to to get to a point where China and Japan can come together to reach a diplomatic solution. Japan needs to indicate to China that a war would be between them would be devastating for for China.
1: The point to stress here, as I said before, I, I don't want to go off sounding like a, a right-wing nationalist in Japan, especially this, because I'm discussing my own country's policies. I don't want to sound make it sound like I want Japan to go to war. I don't. I want this to end peacefully. And I think for that, there's this threshold, which again is very difficult to meet, but a point where there's a balance between these two sides that China feels that it will be far more costly to go to war than to sit down and i think that's the difficulty of defense policy for japan is that every time japan will try to increase its presence like not offensively but just in general it starts this conversation about oh japan is becoming aggressive and japan is trying to go back to pre-war state of military expansionist japan and i think that's just a very easy way to talk about Japan's policies. But I think it's important to know that just an economic relationship between Japan and China will not stop China from expanding and being aggressive, especially in the East China Sea. I think it's important to have some level of defense and offense, especially because defense itself costs too much and it doesn't stop the other side from asserting itself, especially when there's a military gap.
0: All right, well with that, I think now's a good time to, to draw this, this episode to a close. I want to give a big thanks to Rentaro for joining me tonight to discuss the Senkaku Islands as well as the difficult balancing act that's going on between China and Japan. If you're interested in learning more about this issue, I would recommend going to nupoliticalreview.com to read Rentaro's piece on this topic. It's in the global section, and it's called Can China and Japan End Their Game of Chicken in the East China Sea? And Rintaro, where else can people go to learn more about Asian politics in general?
1: Yeah, so um, I've started a blog on my website. It's um, I'm just going to spell it out. Um, it's my name.com. It's R-I-N-T-A-R-O-N-I-S-H-I-M-U-R-A.com. And The blog section has a a few sections. There's one that focuses on Japanese policy, domestically and foreign. And there's another section that focuses on Asia. And right now I've only got content on North Korea, but I'm, I'm hoping I can get some more on China and Taiwan and other issues that are present in Asia. And also I've got a, I started an Instagram page um, t- it's called Asia Watch. The, the account name is Asia underscore watch 2020. And it sort of tries to break down these issues that are probably hard to understand at first glance. And I'm trying to break them down for the average reader who, who's not, who hasn't been following these developments. And the first one I did was actually on the this this issue, so if anyone wants to check it out, please check it out. And thanks for letting me talk today, Max. I really enjoyed it.
0: Fantastic.
1: Just for anyone listening, the Asia Watch
0: account does have posts in both Japanese and English. I am a follower, and I really enjoyed the first post, kind of breaking down this issue in a very easy way. So yeah, go to nupoliticalreview.com. Go to rentaronishimura.com and follow Asia Watch on Instagram. Thank you everyone for listening this week. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation about the politics of East Asia and the tensions between China and Japan over the Senkaku Islands. I know I had a fascinating time talking with Rentaro myself. If you're interested in learning more, and I highly recommend you do, Check out nupoliticalreview.com in the global section to read more of Rintaro's articles on this topic, as well as other East Asian political developments. I highly recommend checking out his recent retrospective on Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who recently announced that he would be stepping down from his position. And also check out RentaroNishimura.com, his personal blog for more information, and his Instagram page, AsiaWatch2020. Make sure to follow that for some quick, digestible content in both English and Japanese. I hope you had a great time listening. If you liked the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I really appreciate it, and it helps the show a lot. Also, make sure to check out and follow NUPR on social media. You can find us on Facebook at NUPolitical Review, and on Twitter and Instagram at NUPolyReview. That's N-U-P-O-L-I review. Thank you so much. Have a great day.